This ticker podcast is coming to you from the Citadel Securities Trading Post on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. There's a bold new animal roaming capital markets. Its ancient ancestors were considered mere pests, gadflies even. But today, feeding at the ever-widening confluence of passive investment, ESG, and activism, more and more stewardship and governance teams are taking up prime positions in the financial ecosystem. They've evolved a new kind of sensory organ, one that lets them see risks and opportunities that don't show up in the balance sheet. And in corporate offices, and increasingly at the proxy, they aren't afraid to approach and engage. I think it's, I think that investors are, are definitely using their votes to influence change at companies, you know, in a way that really hasn't been there before. Alexandra Higgins is a managing director at proxy solicitor Okapi Partners. I started out in this industry right after Enron and WorldCom, and executive compensation was the main focus. Now we've moved on to, you know, then it moved it more into governance issues, right? It moved into declassifying boards and adopting majority voting policies, and now we're hitting this new frontier of environmental and social issues. You may have seen them congregate with corporate counsel, drink at the same watering hole as corporate secretaries. But who are these radical sustainability people? How can you spot them? And what do they want? Well, Alex Higgins helps companies answer those very questions. And she stopped by the post with a message for IROs. We begin with a recap of the proxies at play last season. Higgins notes rising support for new sorts of resolutions. Last proxy season was really a new frontier in terms of how we've seen investors vote. And so one of the things that has been emerging a lot is this confluence of social movements and passive investors. And so for the first time, we saw two types of shareholder proposals pass, one related to the opioid epidemic and then another related to gun violence. And these weren't proposals that were saying, get rid of guns, you know, for the companies that, you know, received the proposals, they were, what is the board doing to prepare or to mitigate the risks associated with gun violence? Because we saw Remington go bankrupt right after Sandy Hook. And then also for not only the pharmaceutical producers, but also the distributors, like the the retailers, basically, receiving proposals related to the opioid epidemic, but not necessarily stop selling opioids and stop producing opioids, but what is the board doing to prepare and mitigate the risks associated with the opioid epidemic? Because there are reputational risks and there are legal risks and economic risks associated with these with these events. And so last year we saw these two types of proposals pass for the first time when these types of proposals never passed before. And so now we're seeing sort of not only with the social movements, but also with environmental proposals. Once the U.S. pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord, that's when you started seeing environmental shareholder proposals on the ballots, specifically asking companies directly to take on what basically the government decided not to, which is to 
adhere to the Paris Climate Accords, and those proposals have been passing as well. And the difference between how companies are responding to these is drastic, because once you have a shareholder proposal that receives more than 50% support, you have now responsibility, even though it's non-binding, even though it's precatory, you have these shareholder proposals that are demanding something of the company, and therefore they have to respond. And so that's, that's kind of where we are. And then this year, we're seeing the same kind of mo- movement in terms of the way that investors are voting, and we're seeing new things on the ballot. Like, I, I just funny, back, why that explosion now? Why before these sorts of proposals would get 10%, maybe, mm-hmm. and now you're saying 50%? What changed? Um, I think it's actually been a gradual movement. It hasn't necessarily been all of the sudden. These proposals have actually been ticking up in terms of support levels. I think the language in the proposals has changed significantly to garner more support. So instead of asking the board to, for example, um, you know, stop selling opioids or, or stop selling guns, they're saying they're they're restricting the language to produce a report telling us what the company is doing to mitigate the risks associated with these things, and that is a lot less prescriptive and a lot easier to digest for investors who want to support these things but don't necessarily want to tell the companies how to run their business. And how, how, do, how do the the rise of passive investment, how does that figure into all this? You're talking about mitigating risks. They're the ones that want to technically mitigate risks while the activist and the active investors would want to use ESG to, uh, in theory, uh, increase value. Okay, so... We're seeing a shift now because ESG and ESG funds, for example, were historically created because the idea was that good governance practices, good environmental and social practices would produce greater shareholder value. Is that true? Is that proven? You know, there are studies that that say so, um, and that's not necessarily my forte in in terms of where I, I come in. I'm looking at it actually from the risk mitigation perspective and helping boards understand how investors are shifting their focus away from not not necessarily away from, but bringing in the risk mitigation factor where they're saying, look, we're going to keep producing these index funds that have to do with sustainability and environmental and social and governance practice, practices, but at the same time, we want to make sure that the board understands the risks associated with climate change, the risks associated with their supply chain, the risks associated with social movements that may end up causing reputational harm, legal harm, or even financial harm that could eventually affect our shareholder value. And so now we're seeing more and more companies uh, actually take that on in terms of engagement and actually more and more investor you know, investor relations officers coming into that discussion that they didn't necessarily have before. I think most of them appreciate that. Some of them wonder if they're actually the right people to to be communicating this stuff necessarily. Well, and that's the thing, you know, with a lot of what I do is I am helping companies engage with the governance teams who are not necessarily the same people 
who buy and sell shares. These are the governance teams, the stewardship teams that are making voting decisions. They're voting on the election of directors. They're voting on shareholder proposals. They're voting on executive compensation packages. And so I think that IR, you know, IR officers are mainly focused on engaging with the, the portfolio managers or the analysts who are, you know, looking at the stock. And now we're starting to see them come into this you know, this foray that is different for them, where they're actually engaging with governance teams and have to listen instead of instead of talk, right? They have to be active listeners and listen to what the governance teams are saying, answer questions that the governance teams want to, want to know answers to in terms of what is the board doing at this point in time to mitigate risks associated with these issues. Sometimes some of the, uh, um, the shareholder teams that I, I've spoken with they say they talk to IR people and they just act like flax. They they really want to talk to the board members. Mm. and and They do. I, I think that it's important for the IR people to be there. I think that it is important for the IR people to understand how these governance teams are thinking about issues because oftentimes they think about issues a little bit differently than the people who are buying and selling the stock or who are trading um, who are managing the funds. And the reason why they want to talk to directors is because the directors are ultimately the ones that oversee the company on behalf of shareholders, that oversee management on behalf of shareholders. And they want to make sure their message is heard directly and not necessarily filtered through an IR person. You think IR people are getting that? Or when you when you engage with IR people? You know, this has actually been a very slow process because, you know, we have a lot of clients who are just starting to bring their IR teams in. Normally at Okapi Partners, we're an investor response firm. So a lot of times people call us whenever there's an issue. There's an activist investor in their stock. They got low support on their say on pay and they need to engage with their investors. What we're now seeing, our clients are coming to us and saying, we don't necessarily have anything wrong, but... You know, we know that ESG is becoming important and we want to talk to these governance teams a little bit more. And so I'm helping them understand how these governance teams work a little bit differently. And I'm helping them to understand that this is really more of a listening exercise and for you to provide uh, additional information that that they may want to hear, but not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have to do with the numbers, right? This, is, this has to do with, you know, corporate culture. This has to do with... Um, you know, what are your disclosure practices in terms of environmental and social issues? How are you preparing for climate change? Things like that. One of the reasons also they want to hear directly from the, the board members is because it helps them to, to know whether or not the board is actually paying attention and the board understands what's going on in, in terms of their oversight responsibilities. And so IR folks, I think, are slowly coming into this with coming from a different perspective, but understanding that they're the people that they're used to engaging with are not the same people that they're engaging with now. And so, and I think that they're really appreciating that actually. Okay. So um, we're kind of jumping ahead, but in your paper, you talked about sort of two streams of mm-hmm. this. Right. So you've got the activist investors, the, the larger activist hedge funds who are creating their own ESG or sustainability or impact funds that are, you know, to be aligned with the passive investors who are doing the same thing. And then you have the activist investors who make 
mostly governance issues, a central theme to their campaigns to take over a board or to get themselves on a board. And a lot of it has to do with executive compensation. That's been a focal point for a few of the campaigns that Okapi has been a part of. And um, But, you know, we're seeing other activist investors starting to bring in some environmental and social issues, like the issue with PG&E, right? That was a huge, devastating wildfire. Explain that to me. What happened? Right. So, you know, I don't know the entire history or exactly what happened, but I do know that in the aftermath, a lot of investors questioned whether or not the board of directors was taking into consideration the drier climate conditions caused by climate change that, you know, are really causing wildfires to spread a lot faster and make them a lot more devastating. And did they consider that in their strategy in terms of, you know, how they, how they maintain the business and how they, how they operated. And so I know that, you know, there was one activist investor who was going for board seats and, and they ultimately chose to have somebody with environmental expertise to be a, a candidate, you know, on their slate because they felt that that was important. And, um, was that proactive or, or were they being pushed by investors to say make an ESG committee or something? I don't believe that yes. that was, I don't believe that that was uh, reactive. I, I believe that that they were doing that because they truly believed it. They were organically woke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that a lot of people are starting to understand the, there are real risks associated with, with climate change. Um, the Department of Defense came out with a report earlier this year uh, saying that climate change is now considered a national security threat. The director of national intelligence um, in, uh, and the national intelligence community released a report uh, of their, their annual worldwide threat assessment. And in there is a section on climate change and how that's going to be affecting national security. And so these are not just, these are becoming tangible issues. Right? These are becoming issues that we're starting to see how they're affecting the bottom line for companies, in particular, uh, any companies that are, you know, not necessarily in the oil and gas industry, but that may be on the coast, right? That may have a lot of their business on the coastline where, uh, or in hurricane-prone areas, right? Where the, there are, these devastating effects are going to have a, a large impact eventually, if they haven't already. So, what's your assessment? And I, I know I'm segueing here again, but like in terms of wokeability, are boards woke? Are, are IR people more woke? How is the communication channel moving? IR people are supposed to be in touch with uh, investors and then getting their concerns and stuff. And they transfer those to boards, or maybe it's a top-down thing, saying from boards, saying, you know, we read the papers. Right. <laughs> I'm not I'm not seeing a lot of of movement in terms of the communication about this topic. Um, I'm seeing a lot of movement on the communication of ESG and the importance of ESG, but I'm not necessarily um, seeing too much about how, you know, there are so many risks associated with environmental and social and governance issues that really need to be taken seriously at this point in time because their investors are voting on these issues. At a certain point, um, you know, and this has happened before, you look at the target situation, right? Shareholders voted against the entire board for not taking into account cybersecurity issues. And that's technically a social issue, right? 
I think that boards are starting to wake up to this, but not necessarily. I think that there's so much information out there, right? ESG information is coming from so many different directions and there's so many different angles to it. There's the investing side, there's the risk side. And I don't think that, you know, there's a disclosure part of it. I think that there's, there's so much information out there that it's hard to digest and it's hard to know where to start. I think the conversations are happening, but it's been, it's been slow. I think it's being sped up by the things that we've talked about today, the BlackRock letter and the uh, really in-your-face commentary by large institutional investors about how they want companies to really change. Yeah, I think that that is definitely an an important aspect. Um, You know, institutional investors using their voting power to influence influence change. Um, And I think a lot of it is, is reactionary to a lack of government regulation, um, but also in the sense that when these events happen, whether it be, you know, gun violence, whether it be, you know, opioid epidemic, whether it be migrant detention, investors are seeing the risks. They're seeing the financial risks because eventually they're gonna, there's, it's going to cause some sort of reputational or legal harm that will impact their investments. And I think that that is largely, largely not talked about very much, other than within that circle of, of the stewardship team. And that's your Ticker Podcast. So, want to join the conversation? Thanks for listening. Citadel Securities is a member of FINRA and SIPC. The content of this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Citadel Securities.